0: hello and welcome to background briefing available 24 seven at backgroundbriefing.org i am ian masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news we'll begin with sunday's vigil for the three african americans murdered by a young white nazi with swastikas painted on his assault rifle at which governor DeSantis was booed by the local residents we will speak with a local resident who understands why Florida's black residents rejected DeSantis's hollow indignation since he is running a campaign to the right of Donald Trump, appealing to the very white racist fringes the shooter inhabited. As it happens, DeSantis was booed on the very same day, August the 23rd, when 70 years ago, a white mob beat young blacks with axe handles as they tried to integrate lunch counters. Known as Axe Handle Saturday, that day in 1960 in Jacksonville is an example of the very black history that DeSantis is erasing from the state's schools. Joining us is Brenda Priestley-Jackson, a former Democratic City Council member in Jacksonville, Florida. A fourth-generation resident of Jacksonville, she serves as the Executive Director of the Dynamic Education Foundation Incorporated and was elected to the Duval County School Board. Then with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Announcing today the first of 10 drugs they intend to bargain down the prices of with Big Pharma under the Inflation Reduction Act, we'll speak with Alex Lawson, the Executive Director of Social Security Works. His work focuses on protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, and lowering prescription drug prices. We'll discuss his op-ed at Common Dreams, The Biggest Defeat Big Pharma Has Ever Suffered. Then finally, we'll examine Mark Meadows' three and a half hours of testimony before a federal judge in Atlanta on Monday, in which Trump's former chief of staff fumbled many of the key questions as he argued why his case should be moved from state to federal court. Joining us is Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime, the author of the New York Times best-selling book The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spymasters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. His latest book is The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. And joining us now is Brenda Priestley-Jackson, a former Democratic City Council member in Jacksonville, Florida, a fourth-generation resident of Jacksonville. She serves as Executive Director of Dynamics Education Foundation, Incorporated, and was elected to the Duval County School Board. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brenda Priestley-Jackson. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Brenda. And at the vigil on Sunday at which the governor on DeSantis attended, he was booed by many in the crowd. Subsequently, on Monday, he's offered up a million dollars to the local university where the shooter went first, apparently, to shoot up the university before then deciding to go to the uh, Dollar General store nearby. So what's your sense of how appropriate that was, that rejection of uh, the governor by the local people, who are understandably enraged by what was clearly a racist targeted killing?
1: I mean, I think it was racist indignation. Um, You know, I, I think you would want deference to our duly elected governor, but I don't know that he's shown the appropriate deference to the African-American community in the state of Florida. And so I I think, unfortunately, um, I I, I remain grateful for the $1.1 million he offered Edward Waters University on Sunday, but that in no way was able to ameliorate the environment that he has largely been um, responsible for creating in the state of Florida through his policies and practices.
0: And some of those are pretty evident, and have been discussed nationwide, and discussed in, in many ways, meeting with uh, disgust because they just his administration blocked the new advanced placement course on African American studies being taught in high schools, and also the new curriculum that he's pushing suggested that slavery was okay in the sense that uh, it was almost like a job training program, that people learned (laughs) job skills. Absolutely absurd notion. And apparently he's allowing into schools this PragerU propaganda, which is just sort of terrible right-wing propaganda that has no basis in fact, and it's just meant to rile up people in this war against wokeness that seems to be Governor DeSantis' obsession.
1: It is it's a culture war, and unfortunately, the victims um, are our neighbors in the state of Florida. So, not only the targeting of the African American community, it's been targeting of the LGBTQAI community. It has been the the dismantling of our educational institutions, and um, it's it is very unfortunate. And and so when you you know you fight AP African American studies, and I actually had a our our, our youngest graduated with an AP Capstone um, diploma from a high school in a public high school in Jacksonville, Duval County, and recently graduated from the University of Vermont. And I remember vividly she could not take AP African-American studies, so she took honors African-American studies, right? Because it wasn't offered at the time. And so to say that it has, what, no educational value, you send a message on the lack of value you place on black lives, which then... The, you know, individual, the murderer, you know, the young man from Clay County feels that he can target a population, an HBCU, and then when he towards at the HBCU, he can drive a little bit down the road to an area not so quietly densely populated, but an economically challenged, older black neighborhood, and he can commit his carnage there. I mean, if you if you say that a history of a people has no value, no educational value. If you say that these same people benefited from slavery and I, I take great umbrage with that because my ancestors on my mother's side of the family, my, my mother's family were enslaved in Fernandina beach going back over seven generations, the Albertis, Right. So, you know, that is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. And so that's the message you send when a young man who's probably a member of the gaming community, who is a disaffected young man who, flushed out of college, came back home to his parents, not working, decides to drive in his car 15 to 17 miles to an area he'd probably never been before, right? And he is thwarted, then he drives further down the street. And, you know, you say African-American studies, you know, has no value, then he says, hey, those who we're studying have no value, so I can, you know, I can target them with their lives. And that's, you know... Unfortunately, that's the atmosphere that's being created. You know that that is the atmosphere that's being created across the country. And and I often say, you know, I, I actually believe that the genie in the bottle was let out some time ago of, of racism in this country, and we are now dealing with the real time effects of ethno racial reckoning. And I I think unfortunately a lot of it goes back to those who were truly challenged by the first black president. I really do. And so I think we've seen it just filter down, whether you think about Mother Emanuel, Annie Church, or you think about Buffalo, you know, and now you think about, you know, targeting EWU at Waters University and then going to the Dollar General down the street.
0: Well, there's no question that Ron DeSantis has got an uphill race against Donald Trump, who's like something like 40 points ahead of him in the polls. And he has deliberately chosen to campaign far to the right of Donald Trump, which is really saying something. And it's it's hardly an accident that he's attracting these kind of far-right misfits. And this kid, by the way, Palmetto, he had a history of – in 2017, he was held for involuntary psychiatric evaluation when he was 15 because of domestic violence uh, calls – He apparently got into a fight with his brother. And the documents from the 2017 case reveal that he left his family home one day and refused to return. And then he left a note indicating that he was going to commit suicide. And, of course, after murdering three African-American shoppers at the Dollar General, uh, he did shoot himself as the police arrived. So it's almost impossible not to hold DeSantis accountable. And by the way, you know, the FBI and Homeland Security have now made it clear that the greatest threat to domestic threat to American security, it comes from white racists. And this shooter had painted swastikas on his assault rifle. So what more evidence do we need? I mean, there's a cause and effect there, I think, in all fairness.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I definitely think it is. I think, again, that's devaluation of life. You know, so here's this, you know, young white male with racist ideology willing to act on it. Right. Um, not working, not in school, 20, you know, 21 years of age. Um, and, and and again, if you send these messages, you know, that you eliminate in the same area, you eliminate a minority congressional district right with minority representation you know you allow guns without permits or licenses permitless carry, we now have in in the state of florida
0: you know And, and, um, and that's that's the result of desantis right
1: yeah absolutely absolutely you know you remove fair and just elected officials from elected office i mean this is the whole climate so there is no real sense of accountability um there is a is a whole level of um I think, some levels of anarchy that DeSantis has encouraged. And this is the culture war he chose to to engage. And and I don't know why individuals act surprised. I mean, this is someone when he ran against the first Democratic um, gubernatorial candidate, um, Andrew Gillum. One of the things he said was, you know, you know, let's stop monkeying around. Right. I mean, what is that? I mean, this is not new. Monkeying around and and in the um, actual commercials back then he had a he had toddlers that may have been his children with building blocks and build a wall what wall are you going to build around florida what hmm. <laughs> that's just illogical right. i mean so so Gil- I mean, Gilliam, of course
0: was an african-american
1: absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. and so you know uh, the, there's a
0: dog whistle and a half there right
1: right so, it is so, and so we live with it i mean you know you so, so You know, we, we have we live with this is the real time consequences of a culture of intolerance and hate. And, and so this young man that you you know, the, the murderer, you know, he what we would say if he were of another ethno racial group, if he were a black male, we would go with all the pathologies in the background of his family. His older brother is incarcerated in prison. Right. His parents say he dropped out of school. They did not want him to have the guns. He's been staying in his bedroom, largely, for the last two years, right? You know, um, and, and and so, you know, I think that there's some real issues there that he had and that the culture and climate that DeSantis has furthered in many ways of the othering of black allowed an atmosphere for this disgruntled, disaffected young white male to act on those urges of why, you know, why he probably feels that he is being left out of his notions of the American dream, you know?
0: And are there red flag laws in in Florida that would have been enacted in the case of this Palmetto, who had an psych- so. I- involuntary psychiatric evaluation in 2017, but yet was able to buy an AR-15-style assault rifle and a Glock automatic pistol?
1: Right. And I, I think the real question is, why can you buy that? Right. I mean, why are they so accessible and available? Right. So I will tell you, um, and since he, the Baker Act in 2017, there will be nothing now to prohibit him from owning a weapon. And that was just the initial 72 hour hole. That was a, you know, based on the note that he left, he threatened suicide. Um, they had come out to the house before when he and his older brother, who is now incarcerated. Right. Um, Uh, had a a disturbance and so you know i i I believe the parents unfortunately um you know they opened their home to their son like many parents do right and he did not have any indicators that he was meaningfully engaging in a productive course of action right and um i don't know that there would have been any other signs for him i I really don't I, i there's nothing else that i made aware of um, that indicated that he would act the way he did. But what I think that we have to look at is what are we doing to protect those institutions and communities that are being targeted by these disaffected individuals who want to act on racial hatred? That's the real issue. So for that part, I am happy that the governor is going to give e- Edward Waters University $1.1 million, to bolster up their security. And the campus has a lot more security now. That's, that's the beautiful thing about it, really, that, that it's not an open campus like it once was. And so these were students who were taught by their president, Dr. Faison, if, they, if you see something, say something. And they did. And so then they went to the campus security, who then ran this guy off, you know, as, you know off of the campus. And so, you know, be clear. That was his intent. That mm-hmm. was his intent. He yeah, that that was his intent. He was run off from the campus when the students saw him and contacted security and security ran him off of the campus. So he drove down the road, you know, um, into an older black neighborhood, went to an area that is right by um an area of apartments that, you know, not, not heavily trafficked, not not on a Saturday in this type of heat we're having, right? Seriously. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. people are not out. And he and he found a target and he found not only the young man who worked in the store, you know, and he found a patron in the store, but he, he first shot the Uber driver who had brought someone to the store, who was outside the store. So that, mm. you know, it's, um, well, the red flag is the census policy. If you want to know the red, the red flag, is about, you, this is what it looks like. This is cause and effect. It really right. is. This is cause and effect.
0: So, on Sunday, August the 27th, when DeSantis was booed at the vigil, that happened to be the anniversary of what's called Axe Handle Saturday, which took place on August the 27th of 1960, when over 200 white riders armed with baseball bats and axe handles, which were prearranged, they chased and beat it up in this violent attack in response to a peaceful lunch counter demonstration organized by the Jacksonville youth council of the NAACP. It's such a bitter coincidence. Is it not that. It's,
1: well, and so it's, um, full disclosure, um, Rodney Hurst, the then president of the youth council is my uncle, right? So he's married to my mother's younger sister. Wow. Um, and, and he, he's the author of a about a hot dog and a Coke. And so, Again, um, as we have times of celebration, then you have the March on Washington. I I think that there is this triggering mechanism for some as we lift up how far we've come, but how far we still have to go. For those, who again, who feel the seeds of racial hatred in their heart, they don't want those types of reminders. They don't want to revisit um, notions or indicators of progress they want to move back. And I think, again, this disaffected young man who is not meaningfully engaged in our society. She's not in school, nor is he working. and He's not in the military. Right. Um, This probably stirred up something within him, probably stirred up something. And, and, And I want to be clear that you could drive, you know, 15, 17 miles from Clay County, uh, to Jacksonville indicates you are mentally imbalanced to create an, to do that commit an act like that. You know, I mean, I think that if you have racial animus and actions of racial animus in your heart, then that that's a level of of, of cognitive dissonance to begin with that may indicate mental imbalance. So it, you know, there was a prayer vigil going on on Saturday that the council member. Um, yeah. Councilmember Pittman, and that's actually the old district that I represented until, um, it's a new or different district now with some other parts in it, but that was the district I represented until June 30th of this year. You know, she was heartbroken and devastated, and, you know, just your immediate response is, how do I get all the resources I can in to help the community? You know, now, whether that was, you know, handled with... um, the the, the greatest degree of foresight and care. I can't say, but I think she wanted to get the resources to the community. Um, I think the community was righteously indignant because they could see there's been a long, look, this wasn't the first event for those of us who are in Florida. This is a continuation of the, you know, ethno-racial vitriol that's being spewed through policy and practice. That's the scary thing about it, right, for the last, you know, several years.
0: By Ron DeSantis. And just in closing then, Brenda, the August 27, 1960, Axe Handle Saturday racial violence meted out against young peaceful demonstrators demonstrating over a lunch counter desegregation back in 1960. That, under DeSantis, will not be taught in schools, right? Right.
1: I, I did not see that as a part of the curriculum in history, right? But I think that we in the African-American community have an obligation to still teach it. I, I often say that my uncle, Rodney Hurst, he, he, his hottest time is usually February of every year because he goes around the state of the country and shares that story. So I would encourage our civic, social, and religious organizations to do what we did before, you know, prior to— integration right you know what we did during you know segregation and teach it ourselves so i mean i would not i would not look nor would i trust initiatives by um this governor in terms of advancing a balanced approach to history because there's been an all-out assault on african-american history
0: well brenda Priestley jackson i thank you very much for joining us here today thank you and again, I've been speaking with Brenda Priestley-Jackson, a former Democratic City Council member in Jacksonville, Florida, a fourth-generation resident of Jacksonville. She serves as the Executive Director of Dynamic Education Foundation, Inc., Inc. and was elected to the Duval County School Board. We're going take a restation break, back looking into the announcement today of the first 10 drugs Medicare intends to bargain down the prices of with Big Pharma under the Inflation Reduction Act.
1: There is no
0: one to turn to And what will you do
2: when the blood of a miracle
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alex Lawson, the Executive Director of Social Security Works, where his work focuses on protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, and lowering prescription drug prices. And he has an op-ed at Common Dreams, the biggest defeat Big Pharma has ever suffered. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alex Lawson.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And the defeat that you're just talking about, that Big Pharma have suffered, actually haven't suffered it yet, but today the White House announced 10 drugs would be in the initial round of negotiations under the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, that would allow for the government and Medicare to bargain down bulk buying the price of prescription drugs. And the Drugs selected in the first round are Eliquis, Jardian, Zeralto, Januvia, Fasiga, Entresto, Embril, Embruvica, Stellara, Fiesp, and Novolog, all of which are very common drugs used by seniors for diabetes to prevent strokes, heart attacks, and also arthritis, blood cancer, and Crohn's disease. So... Why do you think it's time to celebrate, Alex, when there are some serious lawsuits from Big Pharma to stop what Biden announced today?
3: Well, you always have to celebrate when Pharma is sad, and they are certainly sad today. So obviously they're suing and they're saying, oh, we're going to definitely win and all of that. Well, they also were saying, oh, this will never become law. uh, And we beat them then. And the Inflation Reduction Act did become law. Why? Because pharma is the most despised entity in America, according to the Pew poll that asked that question. Um, Everyone hates pharma. Uh, And so, yes, certainly uh, it's important to note that uh, the American people have not gotten the benefit of these negotiated prices yet, but it's still a loss for pharma that the Biden White House is going ahead, uh, not just like they just started. This office has existed or been stood up since the law. Um, This office is the one that actually negotiates the price. Um, It's been stood up since the law was signed. uh, And this is its first product is the list of 10 drugs. Um, Now they enter a process where they're gonna negotiate Uh, with the pharmaceutical corporations uh, and if the pharmaceutical corporations um, don't take the maximum fair price that the government finds, uh, then they will be not allowed to provide their drugs uh, through government programs like Medicare, uh, which means that they would lose their market. So this is, a, this is a situation where each step along the way is an actual uh, victory, because once the process has been started, it's very difficult for pharma uh, to roll it back.
0: And what they're rolling back, in effect, is the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act, aren't they, which was a huge giveaway to big pharma in the establishment of Medicare Part D,
3: Absolutely, I would say that you know, in a town where there's where many corrupt things have happened um, the the giveaway, which is called the non-interference clause, um you know in 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 uh, very Orwellian speak, uh, but that giveaway, which disallowed Medicare, the largest purchaser of prescription drugs on the planet, uh, from using its purchasing power to get a better deal. Uh, and you know, the guy who wrote that into law. He came to Congress to accomplish that. He switched parties when the Democrats lost power. He became a Republican uh, in order to to just push this one thing, the non-interference clause. And then you know what he did as soon as it became law? He quit Congress and he took a $2 million a year job at Pharma, the lobbyist organization uh, for the pharmaceutical corporations. It's not important to remember uh, that person. It's important to remember that crime that that corruption was uh, and what uh, President Biden and so many others, the Democrats in Congress, not a single Republican voted uh, for Medicare negotiations. It took a lot uh, to get this through Congress. There are a lot of champions uh, who can claim credit to it, but what they've done is started to write Uh, that historic ripoff of the American people uh, that blocked the super common sense policy of Medicare using its stature as the largest purchaser of drugs to get a better deal on those drugs.
0: And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the new organization set up to release these uh, first 10 drugs eligible for negotiations today, this is what we learned Tell me, though, Alex, who was the congressman, the corrupt congressman?
3: Uh, the infamous Billy Towson.
0: So you, when you mentioned that this is popular with across the board with both Democrats and Republicans, according to a, a KFF a poll that was done last year, 89% of Democrats and 77% of Republicans say they favored the part of the inflection reduction act that authorizes negotiations to reduce the cost of prescription drugs so there's the proof right that uh, this is popular
3: massively popular i mean it's obvious no one likes getting ripped off um so the american people are united uh on this on a, a few other things Uh, unite the American people as much as just despising the pharmaceutical corporations who they know are ripping us off. Um, And the truth is that most Americans don't know just how hard the corporations are ripping us off because the truth is that the American taxpayers actually fund the research and development of the vast majority of the drugs. So we pay to develop the drugs and then we give the patents away and then the corporations turn around and charge us the highest drug prices in the world. Um, So we are ripped off coming and going. And this is infuriating to the American people. uh, And I believe very forcefully that once people realize that there is a path to not getting ripped off, uh, it's pretty much going to be impossible. Like watch the Republicans, none of them voted for this, but watch how scared they are to stand up and be like, oh yeah, I definitely want to raise your drug prices. They run away from it as fast as they can because it's a losing proposition for any politician to stand with Pharma against the American people.
0: And indeed, uh, Pharma, in many ways, is sort of conflated with the Sacklers. I mean, they are obviously a ghoulish family that are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans, just to make tons and tons of money and then put their name on all kinds of charitable institutions and museums, etc. But I mean, what the Sackler's did is not that different, isn't it, from what these big uh, pharmaceutical companies and the ones that are suing the Biden administration to stop what we're talking about today, uh, which is to reduce the cost of prescription drugs under the IRA. Six big pharma companies are suing Astralis Pharma, AstraZeneca, Boehringer Ingelheim, Bristol, Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and Merck. Uh, And then, of course the industry's main trade group, along with the US Chamber of Commerce, have also filed another suit. So what's your sense of, do you think the public's perception about what they're really up against has been kind of, in a way, the mind has been focused by the Sackler story?
3: I do think, I think that um, people understand that um, what the Sacklers and Purdue Pharmaceuticals did is corrupt the system, corrupt the system, which is the government that is supposed to be protecting people. Um, and in this case, the corrupted the FDA uh, and Janet Woodcock was sitting atop that agency um, and oversaw one of the uh, not one of the the worst failure of the FDA ever which was signing off on something that basically said heroin um, in a pill form is not addictive, which is absolute BS. Um, And because of that, you you see what that has wrought, uh, an overdose epidemic that has um, just devastated this country. Um, And I think what it has, so uh, this is like a wonderful, terrible thing about the American people. The American people are so decent In the aggregate, that oftentimes it's hard for the American people to believe just how sociopathic some of the executives in these corporations are. They can't put themselves in the mindset of a Sackler who's willing to kill uh, and devastate millions of people so that they can, what, have their name carved on the building uh, that we're gonna spend time chiseling off or buy another golden yacht. Um, But that is what we're up against. In the case of many pharmaceuticals, it's slightly different. What they do is they gain a lock on something uh, that people need to live, like insulin, right? For a type one diabetic, they need to give their body insulin Um, because they can't produce it internally, but they need it just like oxygen to live. And these sociopaths in the insulin cartel see that, and they're like, yes, what we will do is restrict access to that drug that all of these people need to live by charging outrageous amounts of money for it. And I think very clearly what they try to do, the 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 note they try to hit is uh, a high enough price that some people die, so that some people die, so that everyone else is terrified enough that they'll spend every penny they have and every dollar they can borrow uh, to afford the drugs that they or their loved ones need to live. That is what needs to end. And today. Uh, in that list of 10 drugs that Medicare is negotiating, you'll see insulin. Um, So it is a day to celebrate, but not the end of the fight. Um, It's a day to celebrate uh, the beginning of a new fight where we're fighting back against pharma, not just defending against uh, everything they're perpetrating on us.
0: So just in closing, what's your sense then, Alex, of the fight ahead with the kind of support that I just mentioned earlier from polls that indicate that 89% of Democrats and 77% of Republicans favor the Inflation Reduction Act's ability to authorize negotiations to reduce the cost of drugs, particularly for seniors.
3: You know, I think it is going to be that. So again, these, these corporations have almost, um, They have unimaginable amounts of money, and they are going to spend to the last dollar to protect their business model. So it's going to be a fight uh, in the courts. But the truth is that the law is squarely on the side um, of uh, the U.S. taxpayer. There's no inherent constitutional right for a corporation to rip off the taxpayers. That's a ridiculous legal argument. Um, And if you had, um, if, if the government does run into some judge who wants to, you know, be a partisan or, you know, work for the corporations, um, I do think that the public blowback from that would be so large, uh, that, uh, it, it, you know, it would be noticed and uh, people, no justice would want to be on the wrong side of such a clear issue. That being said, there's also a million paths on lowering prescription drug prices and Medicare negotiations is in many ways the nicest one. It's a negotiation. Uh, The truth is that these corporations cannot charge their astronomical prices without patents or other monopolies guaranteed by the US government. Those aren't rights, those are privileges. uh, And they can be removed uh, if they are abused. So um, it is a long fight. It'll continue to be a long fight. And you never want to underestimate um, the evilness and the vast resources of the pharmaceutical corporations but it's also really important not to buy into their hype that they can't be beaten. Um, we've beaten them before, and we're just going to keep on beating them. Uh, and we're going—we're not going to stop until every single American uh, can get the drugs that they need. Uh, we pay to develop the drugs, and we need to have access to those medications. Um, without having to worry about some CEO's uh, golden yacht or whatnot.
0: And just in closing, uh, the Republicans never voted for any of any of these reforms. And they, of course, will resist them tooth and nail, along with Big Pharma, because uh, for <laughs> if not for the, the reason that the public like what Biden is doing, and it's probably going to help his re-election. So there will be a, a, another litmus test uh, coming up in terms of uh, who's on the side of the American people. Uh, I thank you for joining us, uh, Alex Lawson.
3: Thank you so much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Alex Lawson, who's Executive Director of Social Security Works, where his work focuses on protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, and lowering prescription drug prices. And he has an op-ed at Common Dreams, the biggest defeat Big Pharma has ever suffered. We can take a brief station break back examining Mark Meadows' three and a half hours of testimony before a federal judge in Atlanta on Monday, in which Trump's former chief of staff fumbled many of the key questions as he argued why his case should be moved from state to federal court. Oh, we
1: got no health insurance, no cellular service, no disease they can cure. We need more money to burn So each person must learn The dollar amount they are worth And those pills make me dizzy Forgetting my body I watch as it walks away And I just keep drinking the poison And
0: smoke But where are the clowns? Send in the clowns Just when I stopped opening doors, finally finding the one that I wanted was yours, making my entrance again with my usual... Friends. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chris Whipple, a multi-Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer of CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spymasters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. And his latest book is The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Whipple. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And what do you make of the three and a half hours that uh, Mark Meadows was on the stand on Monday in the federal court in Atlanta, where he's trying to move the venue from the state court, where he's one of the 19 indicted, into federal court, uh, where he has certain advantages, not the least of which is that uh, he could get pardoned <laughs> if, yeah. if uh, Trump is reelected. So, what did you, what did you make of his rambling testimony?
2: Well, um, first of all, it, it the truth is that even if he succeeds in moving this case from state to federal court, uh, that he is he will not be eligible for a pardon by Trump because it's still a state prosecution. Even if it should somehow end up in federal court, which I which which would surprise me tremendously, because. Mark Meadows has no argument whatsoever in this case. What he's shown is that he has a complete misunderstanding of the role of the White House Chief of Staff, which maybe shouldn't be shocking by now, considering that he was Trump's uh, principal uh, sycophant and not a Chief of Staff in any way, shape or form. But no White House Chief of Staff has any business doing what Mark Meadows was doing Uh, in the state of Florida after the 2020 election. And the notion that uh, being White House chief somehow makes what he was doing okay is just preposterous, in my view.
0: Well, Judge Stephen Jones asked Meadows, quote, is there a role under Article 2 of the Constitution for the president in a state election or any election? And I think that's the key question. And he was not able to answer and He sort of bumbled around and said, finally, Meadows said, I don't know enough to opine. I mean,
2: yeah, it's, it's just it's shocking. And if, if you if you will pardon me, um, the shameless plug for my book on the White House Chiefs of Staff. What's clear is that Meadows read the gatekeepers. And, and I know he did because he told me he did and failed to comprehend a single word in the book. Uh there is absolutely nothing, let me repeat that. There is just nothing about in the job description of White House Chief of Staff that includes meddling in a state election. And um, it's it's just almost laughable, I think, the argument.
0: Well, he was also asked another key question, whether he was acting on behalf of Trump's reelection campaign rather than as a federal employee. And again, he was unable to really give a convincing answer. That that was the surprising part, is what a terrible witness he is, or would be, if there were to be a trial in federal court, if not in state court, they're not going to put this guy on the stand, I'm, I'm pretty sure of
2: that. I, w- I wouldn't think so, but you never know with these guys. Um, and, and, and all the more surprising, because his lawyer is evident evidently has a pretty good reputation um so i can only assume that this is a a kind of hail mary pass on the part of uh, on the part of meadows and his attorney and that they are hoping that if they somehow get it into federal court that they can get all the charges dismissed under the theory of of federal immunity it's somehow because meadows uh was a federal employee that none of this, none of this can stick. Um, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I really can't say whether that makes any sense. But it certainly, certainly doesn't sound very uh, persuasive. So
0: obviously, the question came up: What were you doing on that phone call that we've all heard, where Trump asks for 11,780 votes, just one more than he needed? The question. And you know, you know that, uh, that that was, a, in spite of Biden winning by 8 million more votes than uh, Trump, he only won by 44,000 votes in the key uh, swing states, one of which is Georgia. <clears throat> so there was no question about what Trump was doing, right? He was desperately trying to undo those 44,000 votes.
2: Yeah, and the most important duty that any White House chief of staff has is to tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. Now, any competent White House chief of staff—and I've I've known a, an awful lot of them—and obviously interviewed an awful lot of them—any competent White House chief of staff would have thrown his body in front of that phone call. Uh, that's the chief's job. Uh, the chief, a, a competent chief, would have said, uh, "Mr. President." Um, No, we're not going to make that call. And if you want to go ahead, you're going to make that call by yourself. And when you're done, you'll find my resignation letter on your desk. Uh, That would have been the obvious course of action for any White House chief of staff presented with this set of facts.
0: And how many predecessors were there? Because Trump certainly went through a lot of Chiefs of staff purging the so-called adults in the room and ending up with a sycophant from, from the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus, as it's called.
2: Yeah, Trump had four chiefs of staff in in, in his first term, and that's an awful lot, uh, if not a record. And the reason for that is, of course, that Trump never had any intent, never understood what the job was about, never uh, had any intention of empowering someone to tell him hard truths which is the most important job responsibility. And so they all failed, Um, Reitz Priebus, followed by John Kelly, followed by Mick Mulvaney, and then ultimately uh, Mark Meadows, who was the sycophant that uh, Trump was looking for all along. You know, there used to be a stiff competition for the title of history's worst White House chief of staff. Eisenhower's Sherman Adams uh, got caught up in a payola scandal. Nixon's H.R. Haldeman went to prison for Watergate crimes. Uh, Johnson Nunu got run out of town for using government transportation for personal purposes. Um, All of their crimes pale in comparison to what Mark Meadows has been charged with and for which there's pretty overwhelming evidence. Um, Think about it. Haldeman went to prison for covering up a botched attempt to bug the political opposition at the Watergate. Meadows is credibly accused of orchestrating a mafia-style shakedown of Georgia's Secretary of State for 11,780 votes in that infamous phone call, and, oh, by the way, enabling Trump's uh, attempt to overthrow democracy. So it's not even close in my view, um, and there we are. So
0: just to touch on the enablement of, uh, in on January the 6th, enabling of the insurrection, the testimony before the House committee uh, investigating James the 6th from his chief of staff, I guess, Cassidy Hutchison, was devastating. I mean, talk a- about fiddling while Rome burns. She was describing him in the midst of all this mayhem and this incredibly outrageous act on the part of Trump. What was he doing? He's sitting in his office, sort of scrolling through his his text, wasn't he?
2: No, absolutely true. I mean, I used to think, and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post to this effect back in January of 2021, saying that I thought the defining image of Mark Meadows in history would be the guy who held Donald Trump's coat, literally, uh, when Trump went out to the ellipse to, to, to incite the insurrection. Uh, I now think that the defining image will be that picture, that chilling picture that uh, Cassidy Hutchinson painted you just referred to. As the violent mob was assaulting the US Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence, and she was imploring him to do something to save lives. You know, have you, are you watching the TV boss? She said, they're getting awfully close. Uh, Have you told the president? Meadows sat on the couch in the White House chief's office, scrolling through his phone and finally said, he doesn't want to hear about it. That'll be his epitaph, I think.
0: So what do you think, uh, it's hard to know how judges will rule, but it seems like it was a pretty weak case to begin with, and he certainly didn't acquit himself well, although he was on the stand yesterday in federal court in uh, Atlanta for three and a half hours, spewing, (laughs) I won't use that word. So is there any sense that you have, Chris, about how it may go because a lot of the legal pundits think it it could be devastating for Fannie Lewis's case if the feds take this case. Well, let, well let,
2: let me take the, the, the second part first. Um, I don't think it would be devastating at all. I think the only real difference if it if the case is moved to federal court is that it won't be televised. I don't think the jury pool will be significantly different Um It might be slightly more liberal than a Fulton County jury. I think jurors take their uh, responsibilities seriously. And as I said before, uh, no pardon is applicable uh, to a state case, even if it's tried in federal court. So I don't think it would make much difference in the end. Um, But again, the the argument just seems preposterous on on its face. And even if you were to... Except the idea that um, that Mark Meadows was somehow just uh, doing campaign work um, in in Georgia legitimately, uh, that would, on its face, seem to be a violation of the Hatch Act, which prohibits federal employees from doing that. So any way you slice this thing, it seems to me Meadows loses.
0: So do you think that there is anywhere in this sort of mediocre soul of this sycophatic man, is there any sense of that he failed, that he understands what he should have done or could have done or, or is he just a small man? I mean, I recall, for example, that initially he did send all of his texts to the House committee and which proved to be very valuable and of course the first thing that we learned about them was the role of Fox News in trying to sort of micromanage what was happening on that very day January the 6th. You know all these bomb throwers like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity begging Meadows to do something about the riot. It wasn't a good look and of course you're something of an historian Chris. To my mind what happened just after January the sixth, when clearly McCarthy and McConnell were outraged by what happened, I think historians are going to look at that as the as the greatest missed opportunity in history. Because had they acted then and somehow gotten rid of Trump, we wouldn't be going through what we have. What we're going through, and this Trump wouldn't be able to reinvent himself as the winner of an election that he lost.
2: Yeah, look, uh, Mark Meadows is a puzzle to me because he obviously once had a promising future um, as a politician he was um, one of the leaders of the freedom caucus he's he's a charming uh, person um, and yet there, there, there was a real fundamental flaw there I and mean, it's just hard to explain why anyone like that would cast his lot with Trump um, Jack Watson who was Jimmy Carter's chief of staff said to me you know it's not just mission impossible. It's mission self-destruction, uh, thinking you can be Donald Trump's White House Chief of Staff. And he was a feckless guy, um, a yes man, not just to Trump, but to everyone. Uh, I described him in my book, um, The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. I, uh, I described him as not so much a chief of staff, as a kind of glad-handing matre d'. He um he told everyone what he or she wanted to hear. Uh, even as he was enabling Trump's conspiracy to stay in power illegally, he quietly gave a wink and a nod to a deputy chief to go ahead and carry out the transition to uh, Joe Biden. It's a, he, it's baffling to me. So he's a he's he's certainly a mystery and and but also a, a tragic character, I think.
0: So just in closing then, what's your take on the broader case that Fannie Willis has brought with these 19 defendants, one of whom is Donald Trump? I guess she's going to push through the trial. I mean, one of them, Cheeseborough, wanted an early trial and he's going to get an early trial. And then now others, Sidney Powell and others, are sort of joining in, wanting to get an early trial. It seems unlikely that anything will ever be done before the end of this election, but how how does it strike you?
2: Yeah, it strikes me that it's a big, un- unwieldy, uh, damning case. Uh, but maybe the key word may be unwieldy in, in this respect. And and so I would I would expect Jack Smith's uh, streamlined case against Donald Trump for January 6, with the sole defendant, to to go first. As uh, my best guess. That's March that,
0: the, f- the 4th, right?
2: March the 4th. Right. And I would expect Fannie Willis's case to go, if not last, uh, maybe close to last with the possibly chilling scenario that if, if, if Trump were to somehow regain the Oval Office, uh, what incentive would he have to ever leave? If he knows that when he leaves the when he leaves the presidency, he's going to court uh, in Georgia where there's no possibility of parole, I think that's a recipe for, and obviously this is a, a huge scary hypothetical, but I think it's a recipe for Trump telling his new vice president uh, to certify his uh, uh, staying in power forever.
0: Well, to some extent, that was his case in 2020, wasn't it? That That's why he fought so hard and why he is fighting so hard, to undo a loss. Maybe there's a psychological component that his father brutalized him to the point where you can't be a loser, son. But on the other hand, I think it's always been about staying out of jail, hasn't it?
2: Well, maybe so, but uh, perhaps even more so if he were to somehow get, to get back into office, it would be to use that that old expression, Katie, bar the door, um, it would be a very scary prospect.
0: Well, Chris Whipple, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure.